Welcome to our Good Friday services here at the Tabernacle, where we are one church in multiple locations. Uh, specifically, I want to welcome those who are uh, joining us live in Manistee and those that are unable to be here and are watching online. Before we go to God's word together, uh, would you pray with me? God, our Father, we come to you in need of your help to understand your word and to make sense of this day where we remember your sacrifice, the sacrifice of your son on a cross so that we can have a relationship with you. So God, I pray that you would not only open our ears to hear your word, but that you would open our hearts to receive what you might have to say. And I ask all of this in the name of your son, the one who we worship, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you did happen to bring a Bible, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 23. We're going to look in some detail at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. This is a part of our series through Luke, the Son of God, um, where we're uh, looking at the events as recorded by Dr. Luke so that we would know that it is true and that we would know that Jesus, in fact, is the Son of God. 2,000 some years ago on this day is where we commemorate his crucifixion. You'll recall that he was an innocent man. He had somewhere between four and six different trials. None of them could agree on the penalty and all of them, by any logical observation, would have found him innocent. We know from the Bible that he was a sinless man, the only sinless person to ever live. Scripture says all of us have sinned and fall short of God's glory. But here is a sinless man condemned to die. A murderer has been set free in his place. They've put Jesus on a cross. And it wasn't just the Jewish leaders, and it wasn't just Herod, it wasn't just Pilate, it was also me. It was us. We put him there. Our sin put Jesus in this position. And he has been condemned to die on a cross. And as I studied this week, I, I, I looked at some of the details of Roman crucifixion, and I don't intend to glorify those details any more than it has to be. Um, but one of the things that they would do to prepare the condemned for death is he would receive a flogging uh, and this particular flogging that he would get with, the, with a whip that had many cords, sometimes called the cat of nine tails, that had metal bits and bits of bone tied in it in order to scour and scourge the flesh right off of the victim. This flogging was actually called the half death. It was the half death. And the Romans, their intention with public execution was fourfold. They wanted the death to be protracted, make it take as long as it has to. They wanted the most agony they could get out of the execution. They wanted it to be a public spectacle and for the victim to be utterly humiliated. Jesus wasn't the only person ever crucified, but it's the worst that you can possibly imagine, and that's what a sinless man was condemned to protracted death, unbelievable agony, publicly made a show of, a spectacle, 
and utter humiliation. And so after receiving the flogging, the condemned would be stripped naked and forced to carry his cross in a parade with people encouraged to mock and jeer and shame. This is our Lord. And it would seem that Jesus did receive the half death, as we'll see in just the first few verses here, because they had to find someone else to carry his cross because he was nearly half dead. So we pick it up in Luke chapter 23, uh, starting in verse 26. It says, and as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? And as I mentioned, you saw there was Simon of Cyrene called in to carry the cross. And, and this other, these words of Jesus are actually a prophecy. He's prophesying to this parade of people, some of whom are mocking, but some are lamenting and mourning. And he's saying, if this is what happens when times are good, there's coming a worse time. He's referring to the end of all things when God comes to judge the living and the dead. It'll be much worse then, is what he's saying. In verse 32, it says, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there... They crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The gospel writers are very matter of fact when they talk about the crucifixion. You'd think it would deserve more than just that. And there they crucified him. He assumes that we know that it was hands nailed to a cross, feet nailed beneath it, and that there you would hang until you suffocate on your own blood-filled lungs. He's crucified between two criminals, and in some of the other gospels, it says that both of them at one point were mocking him, but one of them seems to have had a change of heart somewhere during this time. Verse 44 
It says it was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, He praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. And so we believe Jesus when it says he was hung on the cross at the sixth hour, that's about noon. And he hung there and died somewhere around 3 p.m., But during that entire time, from noon to three, the sky grew dark. It doesn't say clouds. These people weren't stupid. They knew what clouds were. It wasn't an eclipse. They knew what that was too. It says the sun failed to shine. It was all of nature was lamenting the death of its creator. Verse 50, it says, now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation And the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. And on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. This is God's word. And this is how Luke records for us the worst day ever that turned out to be the best day ever. The reason I say it's the worst day ever is we have a sinless man, the sinless son of God hanging on a tree. A murderer has gone free and in his place, perfection, beaten, mocked, spit on, scorned, rejected, and killed. But it was also the greatest thing ever. Because what was happening is Jesus, the son of God, was winning a victory. And I wonder if that's why, if you read the four gospels, and they all contain some different details, you know, so we see the full facet of the crucifixion, they don't really glorify the suffering. It's very matter of fact. And there they crucified him. And they assume that we know what that looks like. And it's easy for us to get hung up on the suffering. Not, and I'm not diminishing the suffering at all. But there's a great danger there. As if, as if we see the suffering of the unjust and then somehow their purpose was to make me sympathize with that, then, then I feel better because, you know, I have a greater awareness. You know how in 2022 we don't do anything about anything? We just raise awareness about things? Hey, I want you to be aware people are suffering while I, you know live here in the United States where there's very little suffering, right? This is not about raising awareness so I can somehow feel better. It's to point out the fact 
that he was my substitute. Scripture points to this theological concept that what Jesus was doing on the cross, it's called the substitutionary atonement. He was taking, as it says in Isaiah 53, my sin, my separation, my suffering, my shame, and he's bearing it on a tree. That's what he came to do. The son of God came to seek and save the lost of whom I was one. And he didn't just seek us, he saved us by taking our sin and dying on the cross. We have this multitude of people that are mourning and lamenting for him. And and it's true. We should mourn and lament for the fact that it was our sin that put him there. He was crucified at a place called the skull in English. It's called Calvary. There were two criminals, one on either side. And there's this beautiful moment where, where one of them stops in the joining in of the mockery. If you are the son of God, come down from there. And, and there's something in him, and it's always kind of shocking to me, I guess, or a bit baffling at least, is both of them were there for the same reason. They were both wicked men. They're both murderous men. They're both seditious men. They both observed and saw everything that happened there. But it was one who changed his mind. And it reminded me that the gospel can go out to the four corners of the earth, but not everyone will receive it. And here is the gospel hanging on a tree and one criminal comes to his senses. And he points out to his friend, he says, you know, we deserve this. But he doesn't. He's done nothing. He's an innocent man. And there's that beautiful moment we've referred to so many times when he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus responds to him, truly I say to you today, You will be with me in paradise. And right there, we see the great mercy and love and grace of God. We see his heart. God's heart is about the immediate. Today, he wants you and me with him. And it's because Jesus died on a cross and paid for my sin that today, you and I can be with him. We can be a communion and unity with him by his spirit living in us. That's what the gospel says. You see, there's no way that I could pay for my sin. There's no way that you can pay for your sin. And let's not fall into the foolishness of thinking that somehow if all of my good deeds somehow outweigh my bad deeds, if somehow I'm a good Christian instead of a not so good Christian, that that, that'll earn my way anywhere. If that is your heart of hearts, you don't understand Jesus and you don't understand the gospel. There's only one way that you or I could possibly pay for our sin. You know what that is? To spend eternity in hell. That's the only way to pay for your sin. Jesus did not preach the gospel of be a good person. He preached the gospel of grace through faith in him. Are you with me, church? This is what he's doing on the cross. And right in the middle of all of this, you know, the darkness, and then he dies in the third hour, and these words that he speaks, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That even had the impact on the centurion. The centurion is the head of the Roman guard that he's executing the execution. He's carrying it out. He's under orders. But he says here, the centurion, 
He praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. In Mark, he's recorded as also saying, surely this was the son of God. Two people at Jesus' execution, the manner of his death, drawn by the Holy Spirit, come to faith. While he hangs there in the midst of this suffering, separated from God because of our sin, naked and alone, full of shame, agony, he says, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Spend a little time looking at that verse. I believe it's 34. It says, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The tense of the word said in the original language was this. And, and I think this is important for us. It said, and he was saying and he was saying. So the implication is, it, it wasn't like, oh, there were five, or I can't remember five, six things that Jesus said from the cross. It wasn't a one-time statement. The implication is that during this entire process, the process of being thrown roughly down onto the boards and, and having the nails driven through his hands and his feet and elevated through all of this process, and it wasn't pretty, it wasn't like the paintings, it was bloody and flesh and spit and snot and gasping. That's what it was through this whole time. He's praying, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Forgive who? Forgive the ones that are mocking, the ones that have lied about him, the ones that have condemned him, the ones that are causing him this pain, the religious leaders that are jeering at him, right? The criminals that are shouting, he's just, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. He keeps saying it over and over. You know, I've often wondered, and don't put too much theology into this, but I've often wondered, since this was the most unjust thing that ever happened, the most unjust thing that ever happened was the Son of God hanging on a cross. I wondered if Father, forgive them was the only thing that kept heaven from intervening. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know that it's the Son of God who came to seek and save. There's a couple things we need to understand about this prayer of Jesus, this ongoing prayer. Father, forgive them does not mean that there's some sort of blanket forgiveness, this universalism for all of us. You see, you still must receive forgiveness. Scripture teaches that we still must receive that forgiveness by faith, but it's available to all. We see the willingness of the son to forgive the worst of the worst in the prayer, Father, forgive them. But in order to have a relationship with God, to in order to truly be free of my sin, past, present, future, of my suffering, all the stuff that they've done to me, all the suffering that I've caused, in order to truly be free for all the shame that I felt and the separation I felt from God and others, right? The only way to do that is to receive it by faith, to repent and turn 
towards God. That's why it says in 1 John uh, chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and purify us from all unrighteousness. There's no sin God won't forgive save one. And that is not to turn to him. So Jesus is praying, Father, forgive them. And God the Father has offered him up as a sacrifice so he can have a relationship with us. He's showing us his love in flesh and blood. This is extreme love, is it not? This is an extreme price to pay for salvation, is it not? We see God's extreme love for us. We see the extreme price that he paid so that we can be forgiven. And I think this extreme love and this extreme price calls for extreme obedience in response. Doesn't demand it. Because you can't pay God back then you're earning it again. But if he laid all of that on the altar for us, this extreme love, this extreme price, the very least that I can do in response is give him my extreme obedience, which is an act of worship. So what does that extreme obedience look like? And I gotta warn you, church, this may not, this pill may not go down so well but it's Good Friday. And I feel like this is God's word for me, for us, from this passage. And it's simply this. When I think about how our Lord said, Father, forgive them, the application for me, for us, is that the Son of God forgave you so that you can forgive Oh, I don't like that at all. I better say it again. The son of God forgave you so that you can forgive. If God in his love and his grace and his mercy and his compassion, his wisdom and his sovereignty chose to offer up his son as a sacrifice and in that process, he said, Father, forgive me, forgive you, forgive us. How can we not then forgive others the way he taught us in the Sermon on the Mount? The Son of God forgave you so that you can forgive. It's possible. He modeled what he preached. He modeled what he expects. And his extreme love and his extreme sacrifice calls for my extreme obedience to his word, which says that I also can forgive. Consider Matthew chapter 6. If you remember the story, if you don't, I'll recount it for you. His disciples came to him early in his ministry and said, Rabbi, would you teach us how to pray? And so he taught them what many of us know as the Our Father. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It's just a sample prayer. It's not a magic prayer. And he said, this is how you pray. And part of his prayer was, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Meaning, God, forgive me at the same level and at the same power rating that I forgive others. Some of us better become forgiving machines, right? That's what the prayer says. 
heard a story of a man that survived the genocides in Rwanda, a pastor. His tribe was brutally attacked by the other tribe. He saw family members, his own children, hacked to pieces. He barely made it out alive himself. For years, he could not pray the Lord's Prayer. For years, he couldn't pray it. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. You know, it's interesting. After Jesus taught the disciples that prayer, he highlighted that particular part. In Matthew 6, you can look it up at your, at your leisure later. He said, because if you forgive on earth, your father in heaven will also forgive you. But if you will not forgive, neither will your father in heaven forgive you. The son of God forgave you so that you can forgive. The son of God forgave me. How dare I withhold forgiveness from others? So what's the point? What am I driving after? I think there's two things for our application for this Good Friday. And it's simply this. Receive forgiveness and give forgiveness. Receive forgiveness and give forgiveness. Let me be clear. When I say receive forgiveness, I'm talking to two people, two kinds of people. First of all, the person that is not a Christian, that has never asked Christ into their life, has never understood the gospel. Maybe the Holy Spirit, even right now, is convicting you of your heart and you want to become a child of the King. You want to be adopted and forgiven and have eternal life that's promised by this book. Well, all you have to do is receive forgiveness. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to go take a shower. You don't have to get your affairs in order. You don't have to talk it over with five friends. In these moments right here, you can simply say, God, would you forgive me and receive it? It's by faith because of God's grace, right? Grace and faith are how we become Christians. But there's a second person here that needs to receive God's forgiveness. He or she is a Christian, but you still don't feel forgiven. How much more did Jesus have to suffer? How much suffering would you want to put on him in order to pay for your sin? Because you're the most special sinner ever. And maybe it's not that you can't receive his forgiveness. You can't forgive yourself because of your own pride. And so maybe this Good Friday could be you could finally let it go and receive forgiveness. Let it drop the 18 inches from your head down to your heart. I think that's the first thing. Receive his forgiveness. That's what Jesus prayed for. He said, Father, forgive them. And it turned the heart of the criminal. The one criminal, how did he receive forgiveness? Well, first of all, he acknowledged that he was a sinner. When he said to the other one, you and I deserve this, he's admitting he's a sinner. And then he turns to Jesus and says, Lord, When you come into your kingdom, that's faith. Remember me. And the great thing about that criminal hanging on the cross, and I've said it before, but I'm still not over it, and you're still here, so I'll just keep repeating it. He couldn't do anything for God in response. He was nailed to a cross. He couldn't get baptized. He couldn't go to church. Couldn't go through the membership class. He couldn't give to the poor. He couldn't serve as an usher. He couldn't invite his friends to Easter Sunday. He couldn't do any good deeds. All he could do is believe. I wonder if God allowed that so you and I could get through our thick heads. 
Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. He admitted his sin and he believed enough to ask and he received and someday we'll get to meet him. Or you can be full of pride and be the other one. That criminal who we have no record of any change in his heart. So the first thing I'm asking everyone to do is receive forgiveness. The second thing I'm gonna ask all of us to do is we have to give forgiveness. If you wanna be forgiven, the scripture says, you have to forgive. I didn't make the rules and I don't even like this rule. If I was God, I'd have left that part out. But I'm not God, thank God. And neither are you. We're called to give forgiveness. To who? To them. To the ones that have hurt us. To ones that cause pain and suffering and separation and our shame. Including ourselves. We need to give forgiveness. Jesus paid for all of it is what we sing, right? And if you believe that, we give forgiveness. Now, let me explain just in the few moments we have left. Forgiveness does not mean what happened was okay. That's not what forgiveness is. That's silly little preschool forgiveness where the teacher just wants peace. Now, you forgive and you forgive, kiss and make up and move on. No, that's not what we're talking about. Forgiveness does not mean that what they did means it was okay. Forgiveness doesn't mean that you have to remove a boundary you may have put down in order to protect them or yourself or those around you. You know what I'm talking about? The boundaries sometimes with with people that are habitual pain causers. That's not forgiveness. You don't even have to speak to a person to forgive them. Forgiveness is about letting go and letting God be the judge, letting God decide and deciding I don't need my pound of flesh from them. It's not up to me. Why? Because God forgave me and I know I've hurt people. And I need his forgiveness and their forgiveness. So who am I? To be full of anger and resentment. Oh, forgiving could be the best thing that happened to you. There's some of us in here, just a little bit of forgiveness, you know, might add, a, add a, one more year to your life, Mr. Heart Attack, right? Just so full of anger. Let it, what, what if you just forgive? And let God... Let God handle it, right? It could take some of the wrinkles away from this grandpa's eyes. Just let it go. God forgave me so that I can forgive. Receive forgiveness. Give forgiveness. So I don't know what God's saying to you. But I know the son of God who came to seek and save the lost prayed in those agonizing, humiliating shame-filled moments as he died naked and alone, abandoned, separated with God the Father, having turned his back because he couldn't look upon sin, he prayed, Father, forgive John. Forgive the tabernacle. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And so on this Good Friday, we get to celebrate or commemorate a tangible expression of what we've been called to remember and that through communion. What Paul writes about 
the commemoration of what Jesus did on the cross is in 1 Corinthians. And I just want to read it to you on this formal occasion. It says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So very simply what that says is that when we come to the Lord's table, first of all, this is only for Christians. And so if you're not a Christian and you're with us watching online or you're in Manistee or you're here live, uh, what we're about to do is not for you. And, and I would encourage you to sit this one out. That's, that's okay. No one's gonna look at you weird. And if they do, we have a special hit squad to keep Christians in line when they act stupid. Uh, just kidding. I hope no one looks at you weird. But if you're not a Christian and you'd like to become one, what a great moment to do that. If God's spirit is tugging on your heart and you do wanna have a relationship with God, a simple prayer will do, but don't just take communion because everyone else is. Secondly, it says that we should only take communion in a worthy manner. And that's not always speaking about reverence and all. That means without gross sin in my life that's unconfessed. And in light of this message, it also means if there's unforgiveness in your heart and you need a little bit more time to think about it, I understand that you ought to sit this one out too. But don't have anger and resentment and unforgiveness and dare take communion. Oh, I'm so grateful for what he did for me, but now I can't wait to get back at them. Does that make sense? So that is what God's word instructs us to do in regards to the Lord's Supper. So I wanna give us an opportunity before we take communion. And by the way, if you're at home and you wanna join us, uh, find something in the fridge and, and we invite you to do the same. But here and in Manistee both, would you, would, you bow, would you bow your heads? Let's bow our heads together and take a few moments, examine our hearts and talk to God. Maybe there is someone that you need to forgive right now. You can do it right where you are. And like I said, if you're not a Christian, I invite you to become one in these moments. Jesus, the son of God forgave us so that we can forgive.
Father God, I thank you for your love. I thank you for the mission that you sent Jesus, your son, to accomplish. For the price that you were willing to pay. Jesus, our Lord, our King and Savior, I thank you for surrendering your will to the Father, for winning the victory in the garden so that you could go to the cross and win a victory for me and for us. Thank you for praying for our forgiveness. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would draw those who don't know you to yourself in these moments, that you would convict us of sin, that you would help us to see where we're unforgiving towards others. And would you help us to nail that to the cross, to release that and say and agree that what you did was enough. Thank you for your body that was given for us, for your blood that was shed for us, that you paid the full price and then some so that we can be called the sons and daughters of God. Thank you that we can't repay it. Thank you that we can't earn it. Thank you that it's completely beyond us, your great love. Most of all, thank you for Jesus, your son, the son of God. It's in his name that we pray. Church, when you're ready, both here in Manistee, there's stations around. Uh, We invite you to come quietly, maybe not all at once. Uh, Again, I failed to say this in our last service. Come come down the right side of the road, exit on the left. And uh, if you'll get back to your seats, we'd invite you to Sit again. Uh, There's a little bit more of the service that we have to go. So when you're ready, uh, you come.